podcast Ascenta Insights Series 2. I'm your host Nanda Felding, a senior partner at Ascenta Partners, a contemporary executive search firm in London, where I run the global consumer and brand practice. Thank you first of all for sharing your positive feedback regarding the first episode series last year as Ascenta's response to the pandemic. As the corporate landscape continues to change, we decided to launch Ascenta Insights Series 2. This time the theme is purpose which is clearly a hot topic at the moment and spans across multiple aspects, such as branding, sustainability, diversity and inclusion, well-being, and much more. Throughout series two, we continue to leverage one of our greatest assets, our global network of executives, and will be joined by a guest speaker in each episode, touching on the purpose-driven topic. We have spoken about mental health and employee well-being in series one. And no doubt the pandemic has shifted the paradigm in terms of not only being able to talk about these topics, but also to take on a more comprehensive approach to employee well-being overall, i.e. to go beyond the football in the office. Today, we are continuing the dialogue around this topic, well-being, specifically the future of well-being. And we've invited Polly Collingridge from Your Employee Well-Being to share food for thought. She's an intercultural well-being expert and researches the world of corporate well-being to ensure that their services are in tune with what people want. As mentioned, Polly works for Your Employee Well-Being, a company helping employees and employees to manage the four pillars of well-being. She will share more about the four pillars, as well as what well-being has traditionally meant within the corporate world and share some ideas about what well-being programs in the future could look like. It is a comprehensive approach, ensuring employee happiness is the ultimate objective. We hope you enjoy this session. And Polly, over to you. Thank you for inviting me, Nanda. I'm delighted to be part of Ascenta's second podcast series. I want to talk today about employee well-being. Now, most of us know that it matters, yet there are so many companies out there, large and small, who don't necessarily feel they're getting it right, despite having carefully implemented well-being strategies. And there are still other companies who aren't yet convinced of the worth of a well-being programme or who consider it a luxury they can't afford. I'd like to share some thoughts with you about the impact of COVID on employee well-being, what well-being has traditionally meant within the corporate world, and then to consider some ideas about what well-being programmes in the future could look like. Let's call it Wellbeing 2.0. Employee well-being has been edging its way further up the agenda for a while now, even in those distant-seeming pre-COVID days. Statistics have shown that mental health issues cost productivity on an unimaginably huge scale. And it's common knowledge that happier people are physically and mentally more resilient, which of course means less sick leave, less burnout and higher rates of staff retention. Employers are also increasingly conscious of the fact that employee happiness is linked to motivation, creativity, innovation and overall productivity. But in 2020, COVID upped the ante on well-being in totally unforeseen ways. Things have got more difficult for a lot of people. Many are experiencing burnout from having to work harder than before, whether it's because they're trying to save a business struggling to survive or because they're in a critical role. Those working from home often feel they're living at work, with the boundaries between work and home life blurred, 
especially those juggling homeschooling and other caring responsibilities. Many have to contend with poor Wi-Fi and a lack of a decent workspace. The absence of real-life, face-to-face social interaction and the challenges of communication caused by workplaces not geared up for remote or hybrid working are increasing loneliness and mental health issues. Financial worries are very much on the rise. It's clearly become even more vital that we really understand the impact of poor well-being in a working environment and how we can most effectively support employees. Luckily, the pandemic has in many ways made it easier to talk about well-being and mental health issues. Whatever we're going through individually, we now also share a wider problem that affects us all. While some have it harder than others, we have all faced the same existential threat, a fear for our lives and those of our loved ones, our livelihood and our way of life. There's been a huge paradigm shift in the way we work since COVID turned our lives upside down. This is something that's happened on a global scale and it's raised all sorts of questions about the future of work and the positives that might be able to come out of the current crisis as a sort of silver lining. Pretty much overnight, millions of people stopped commuting to the office and began working from home instead and have been for nearly a year now. What might that mean for workplace well-being? Before we consider answers to that question, I think we need to take a look at the kind of typical employee well-being offerings that have existed up until now. Most well-being programmes are very well-intentioned, but tend to be light on measures that genuinely make lasting changes to employee well-being and heavy on physical health-related benefits and short-term high-impact perks. I'm talking about employee assistance programmes, private medical insurance, subsidised gym membership, subsidised canteen lunches, free yoga classes and mental health first aid, for example. A focus on physical and mental health can mean that other aspects of well-being, such as financial stability or quality of relationships with others, are overlooked. Sometimes a concern about being able to handle worst-case scenarios means that we forget that prevention is better than cure. Programmes like Mental Health First Aid can be fantastic in emergencies, but tend to reinforce the idea that all mental health problems lead to a crisis for the unlucky few instead of highlighting the fact that mental health or emotional well-being is a spectrum that we all find ourselves on, something that is in constant flux and that we all need to learn to manage. There's certainly still work to do in destigmatizing the quote-unquote mental in mental health, as well as facilitating conversations about topics considered taboo. This is especially true of men who often don't wish to appear vulnerable. Many of the well-being benefits I've just talked about have undoubted value, Although with gyms and canteens closed, they can feel more than a little redundant for remote workers living under lockdown restrictions. The trouble is, they're often provided with an assumption that one size will fit all, and they are rarely incorporated into a well-being strategy that properly addresses the fundamentals of what employees need to perform to their true potential. Well-being policies need to be truly embedded into the workplace culture, not just in the small print of an HR handbook or people's contracts. So, what do employees need to perform to their true potential? I think it's worth taking the time to reflect again on what well-being actually means. The dictionary defines it as the state of being comfortable, healthy or happy, but that really doesn't reveal anything about its holistic nature. In fact, there are four completely intertwined facets of well-being – emotional, physical, social and financial. Essentially, an employee's needs in each of these four core areas need to be met for them to feel happy. We already know that being physically fit helps our our mental well-being. We've experienced for ourselves that physical exercise releases feel-good endorphins in the brain. And research has shown that it can improve concentration, memory and our ability to learn as well as enhancing creativity. 
Our level of financial security, which affects the extent to which we control choices available to us, is also intricately connected with our emotional state. People with financial worries have been found to be 380% more likely to suffer from anxiety and panic attacks, and 470% more likely to be depressed, as well as being more likely to have difficulties in their relationships. Our social well-being, and that means our personal life and friendships, as well as our professional relationships, also impacts the quality of our emotional well-being. We all need to have a sense of belonging to a community, whether this is in the workplace, at home with family, or with a group of friends who share common history or interests. And as well as that need to belong, we also need to feel valued and that we've contributed to something bigger than ourselves, that we've given something back. Theories of human motivation, well-being and psychological resilience I'm thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Carol Riff's six-factor model of psychological well-being, to name two, have highlighted the importance of these social needs for our well-being. So it shouldn't be surprising, but I'm not sure that enough workplaces have thought carefully enough about how this relates to their own employee well-being programmes. For example, one of the six factors from Riff's model that contribute to psychological well-being is autonomy. Certainly, our motivation can soar when we have the freedom to make our own decisions about what's best for us, and are trusted to balance this with the needs of our colleagues, company, family and wider community. It's not surprising then to find that a 2019 workplace wellbeing census carried out by Bupa found that some of the most desired workplace changes in terms of wellbeing included flexible working, a more manageable workload and greater recognition. For those working in smaller companies, these three changes mattered more than a higher salary. Of course, everyone wants to be fairly remunerated for their efforts, but it's worth pointing out that studies of life satisfaction have shown that once people earn enough to have a decent quality of life, income no longer correlates with happiness. There are other things that matter more. Companies that understand what really matters to their employees are the ones that thrive. Let's look at a few examples. The American workplace monitoring site, Comparably, released its annual list of 100 happiest companies for 2020. Among the top 10 were Zoom, HubSpot, Microsoft, Apple and Google. It's clear that the companies with the happiest employees are also among the world's most successful. These tech companies, most of which have sprung up on America's West Coast and Silicon Valley in particular, are famous for their relaxed college campus vibe, table football, free beer kegs and beanbags and so on. But the perks themselves don't matter as much as what they're meant to facilitate. That is, a working environment designed to foster regular, relaxed and open communication, trust, flexibility and autonomy. This is what goes hand in hand with innovation and productivity. These companies have realised that execution and efficiency are not always the be-all and end-all, and that a seemingly more circuitous route to the end goal, one that prioritises trust, relationship building and creativity, can often be more successful in the long run. Let's take a look at Google's project Aristotle. This research project, conducted by Google a few years ago, was a comprehensive investigation into the factors that contributed to the effectiveness of a team. After many different studies, Google found the single most important factor that impacted on a team's effectiveness was psychological safety, a term that referred to whether or not the team members felt comfortable being transparent and honest with each other. What they found was that if people didn't feel able to be respectfully candid with their team members, including their boss, the success of the group endeavour was seriously jeopardised. Of course, you can only get that level of candour if people aren't afraid of looking stupid. So it's more important than you might think that all employees, and especially team leaders, are okay with being publicly fallible. 
The CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, has revealed in his recently published book, No Rules Rules, that it was precisely this realisation of the importance of failing publicly that caused him to reinvent the company culture at Netflix. When Netflix decided to split its DVD and streaming business, Hastings made a pricing decision that had a catastrophic effect on the company. Afterwards, he realised that many of his senior colleagues had not supported his decision, but hadn't felt able to tell him so. None of those employees had revealed their feelings to others in the team, nor had they felt able to express their reservations to their boss individually. Hastings realised in retrospect that if they had had more open communication as a team, they may have felt able to approach him as a group and change a course of action that nearly sunk the company. Hastings learnt from his mistake and has subsequently empowered the Netflix staff to express opinions and make big decisions on their own, even such decisions as how much vacation they can take and what their travel and expense budget should be. Their policy is essentially to have no policy on such things. The company advocates complete transparency. There are no lockers or meetings behind closed doors. Candor is encouraged in all conversations, provided it is done with positive intent. Staff are given the context to make the right decisions and are entrusted to have total ownership of everything they do. The idea is to inspire rather than control their employees. It's worth pointing out that this works for Netflix because they make sure to hire only the most talented people and to retain only the top performing employees. This hadn't originally been a Netflix policy, but Hastings realised that it was transformative in terms of motivation and achievement when he was forced to get rid of a large percentage of his workforce, including many that were perfectly good at their jobs. What he was left with was the very best people he had. These people weren't cast down by the redundancies, as he'd expected. Instead, they threw themselves into their work as never before. They were happier and more productive. What Netflix realised was that the merely adequate performers sap a manager's energy and that bad attitudes are contagious, and that top performers want to work in a talent-dense environment. I'm not saying all companies should follow every one of Netflix's policies, but they're clearly doing a lot of things right. In another US survey investigating happiness and job satisfaction, in which there was a strong positive correlation with growth opportunity, Netflix came top. Once again, we see how important it is for people to have a sense of control over their lives. What's interesting is that Netflix has a presence on several continents and a diverse multinational workforce, yet they've observed that this desire for autonomy and work-life balance is a universal one. I realise we've been talking about some of the world's largest and most successful companies. Well, what about the rest of us? I hope it's increasingly clear that an effective well-being strategy for the future can be more about culture change within the workplace than expensive benefits and flashy perks. Well-being and its positive impact on the bottom line really needn't break the bank. I believe that Wellbeing 2.0 needs to address the following fundamentals before anything else. First, make sure that any well-being strategy is not only embedded into every company policy, but also that it is modelled by those in charge. Netflix's vacation policy wouldn't work if senior leaders didn't take a decent amount of holiday time themselves. I know of other companies with take-as-many-days-off-as-you-like policies that have backfired because, although that's what it says in the contract, in practice everyone works themselves into the ground. Ask yourselves, do you feel comfortable taking time out at lunch to go for a walk, or do you feel you need to stay visibly hunched at your desk, tapping away on the keyboard to prove your worth? Can you leave loudly to see your child in their school play, or do you hope to slip out unnoticed? Company well-being policies and actual office culture need to be one and the same or they don't really mean anything. 
If you don't trust your staff to do their best or make up time they've missed, then maybe you haven't hired the right people. On that note, make sure to recruit the most talented people you can afford from a diverse range of backgrounds and perspectives and invest in management training. Managers are in the front line of well-being and the first to become aware of problems of those in their team. They really need the tools to support them properly. Research by the not-for-profit community interest company Investors in People has found that there are 2 million quote-unquote accidental managers in the UK. That is, they have been promoted without training. Now you wouldn't let an engineer or a doctor practice their profession without training and yet we allow people to manage other people with no prior experience all the time. Managing people well is not actually all that easy to pick up as you go along, especially because managers are often managed badly themselves. You might be shocked to learn that GPs have reported that 80% of mental health patients' problems are work-related, and the majority of these are due to their relationship with their line manager. Think back to Netflix's policy on talent density. Toxic managers are not conducive to motivation, achievement and a culture of well-being in the workplace. Think too about how to enable honest communication at all levels. The workplace needs to be a genuinely safe and inclusive space where people feel able to express their thoughts and ideas, regardless of their gender, ethnicity, culture, sexual orientation or their disability. Leaders need to model acceptance and respect and visibly demonstrate their own fallibility for that to happen. Another key area to get right is workload and work-life balance. Quality of life is critical for well-being. As we heard from Chiara Bisconti in her fascinating podcast on the importance of time and space on the future of work, time is our most precious resource, the one thing we all lose a bit of every day, never to get back again. You know those micro-tasks we all have to deal with on top of our day job, what I like to call life admin. That eats into our time too, and then there are additional stresses to deal with, from chronic low-level stuff to huge crises that can hit us unawares. We all know we need to make time for self-care activities, time to go for a run, make a healthy meal or go through our finances. But it's just not that easy. And of course parents and carers are even more time poor. Often they put in hours that are the equivalent of a second job, giving practical and emotional support to others. As an aside, in a survey last year, the charity Working Families found that just under half of working carers weren't getting enough sleep and didn't have time to exercise, and just under a third found work had a negative impact on their relationship with their partners. But small actions on the part of a good manager can make a big difference in work-life balance and perception of workload. For example, being conscious of your communication style. One easy fix could be, if you like to catch up on emails late at night or at weekends, make sure you take time to make it clear to those who report to you that you don't expect an immediate reply. Employers can benefit from showing their staff that they know they have a life outside work. This is why the company I work for, Your Employee Wellbeing, has created an affordable portal for smaller companies to facilitate employee access to a wide range of carefully vetted, wellbeing-related practical advice and holistic services. The portal is designed both to save employees time and to acknowledge that we all have problems or issues in our personal life that we might need to resolve. People really need that recognition. It seems to me that the companies who are willing and able to address these well-being fundamentals I've just been talking about are also likely to be the ones that have the agility required to maximise the positives afforded by the current crisis. Because the paradigm shift in the way we work has brought the things we most need to focus on to the forefront of our consciousness. For example, working from home has forced many companies to embrace and endorse a more trusting, flexible and autonomous way of working. It's made us reflect on what we communicate and how, what we need to know and when. 
It's also made us consider the importance of our working environment and what we need to be productive and creative. And while the work-life juggle has arguably been harder for those with small spaces, inadequate Wi-Fi or young children to care for, many have found it's given them more flexibility and freed up time to fit more quality activities, including self-care and caring for loved ones into their day. Of course, long-term remote and flexible working also helps companies reach sustainability and diversity and inclusion goals, as well as potentially saving costs on office space and widening and strengthening the talent pool. In such uncertain times, it's helpful to reframe the future as one full of possibility. The smartest companies will seize the chance to show prospective employees that they understand that their success depends on how effectively they can look after the happiness of their staff, and that this involves a lot more than private healthcare and a massage at your desk, nice as those things are. These are the companies that will find it easiest to attract and retain top talent. And this top talent will, in a kind of virtuous circle, also help them to maintain a genuine culture of well-being. I really hope that more companies will find the time and the courage to look carefully at their policies, their communication style and their workplace culture generally, and that they'll conduct open and honest internal conversations about the issues impacting employee well-being and how these can be addressed. It will require psychological safety just to take those first steps, and a recognition that the time spent will eventually reap significant financial rewards, but I believe that Wellbeing 2.0 depends on it. Well, here's to happier people and all the great things they can achieve, and to 2021 finishing better than it's begun. Thanks for listening, and back to you, Nanda. Thank you, Polly, and super insightful. Love the references to one of my favourite books, No Rules Rules. And indeed, it's great we can openly acknowledge that happiness is the key to business success, and not some nice to have. A comprehensive well-being strategy can work miracles in achieving this. And it's interesting to note that we see more and more senior talent asking questions about well-being strategies of future employers, which is a great indicator of where the opportunity lies. Thank you for joining us today. And we'll be back soon with another purpose-driven theme and episode. Take care till then, and please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss the next episode. (music) 